92.3 FM W222CD Louisville and 106.9 WVEZ FM HD2 St. Matthews Louisville, a pure radio station. Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. It's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but it's aimed at novices and strugglers. It seems in the church we often encourage people to read the Bible, but we don't give them a plan that's workable, and we don't give them any accountability. So the Word Diet is meant to address that omission. More more information is available about the book and the project at thoroughlyequipped.org. We're in the book of Revelation, a challenging book, but a great book. It's understandable and applicable, especially if you get a little bit of help from someone like me. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. We're in the middle of a section of Revelation called the Seven Pictures. There are the Seven Seals, the Seven Trumpets, the Seven Thunders, which uh, get dropped. The Seven Pictures, we're in those now. And then uh, we'll get to the Seven Bowls of Wrath shortly. But uh, this comes from the seventh trumpet at the end of chapter 11, and that introduces this section from Revelation 12 to 15, and then the seven bowls of wrath get rolling in chapter 16. In chapter 12, we had the great chapter about the woman and the dragon. We talked about that two weeks ago. Remember that previous shows are available on Spotify and SoundCloud and the like, so if you didn't hear about the Woman and the Dragon, which is in essence the Christmas story from behind the scenes. Uh, I definitely recommend that to you. Then last week we talked about another great chapter, The Two Beasts uh, and the Mark of the Beast in chapter 13. So for today, that takes us to chapter 14 and perhaps chapter 15 if time allows. Chapter 14 has the Lamb and the 144,000, three angels, and then two harvests. So that is the agenda for today. A couple of things to say by way of introduction. This is a tough chapter for the futurists, the ones that see most of this playing out into the future, and they tend to read things relatively literally. But chapter 14 is probably easiest read as a parenthetical outline of the rest of Revelation. And there's a whole lot of figurative stuff in this chapter. So it is relatively tough sledding for the futurists. And I think the other broad thing to say comes from Metzger, who says this is an interlude intended to reassure us. One of the characteristics of this book is the alternation of sharp contrast between scenes of frightful horror and scenes of welcome security. And we'll certainly see that here in chapter 14. Lord be with us as we open the scriptures today. Uh, A tough passage for us. Pray that we would have insight into it. Uh, I pray that we would not be distracted by the details as well, but we would focus on your sovereignty and the hope that you have for us in Christ Jesus. We know who wins in the end. We pray that we would live like it today and the days to come. We pray all this in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station, and this show. We'll take a break before we get rolling, so stay tuned, and we'll be back in a minute. 
dependable, trustworthy, pure radio at 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Revelation 14 this week, and there are three distinct sections. There is the Lamb and the 144,000 in verses 1 through 5. We'll start with that. Then the three angels, and then the two harvest. So reading verses 1 through 5 of chapter 14. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. The first thing to say here is that it's really important to read the beginning of chapter 14 in light of chapter 13. And in chapter 13, we had the two beasts and the mark of the beast. And as we mentioned last in last week's show, uh, there were a lot of counterfeits, that the dragon is counterfeiting things. You've got false religion that looks like a lamb. Well, here you have the true lamb. We had a mark of the beast, and now we have the mark of God revisited. So I think we read chapter 13 separately too often. We don't read it in the context of 14, and that hurts our understanding of this passage and hurts our understanding of last week's passage as well. So again, I would commend last week's uh, podcast to you. It's on Spotify under the Word Diet, and uh, chapter 13's program is available there, along with all the other programs that we've had on Revelation. So verse 1 has the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. So again, this is in contrast to the false Lamb of chapter 13, verses 11 through 18, which stood in for false religion. Of course, the Lamb represents true religion. I like the picture of the lamb standing on a mountain. The standing is a picture of being secure and triumphant. Being on a mountain is a picture of being on a stronghold and in the heights. Remember the picture we had in chapter 10, verse 2, of the mighty angel holding the little scroll. He planted his right foot on, on the sea and his left foot on the land. And it was a picture there of complete sovereignty over land and sea. In other words, everything. And his right foot was on the sea, which was impressive, really impressive. So now we have something similar, a different picture of security and strength and the like, uh, God's sovereignty, uh, the standing on a mountain. Remember, remember that the beasts were, in contrast, coming out of the earth and coming out of the sea. And the dragon who was overseeing the events of chapter 13 was on the seashore. And as we said last week, there was quite a bit of power in the dragon and the beast. But here we have true religion, uh, God, the angel, the lamb, Christ, standing on a mountain, which is, of course, more impressive. In particular, Mount Zion is a representation or a reference to Jerusalem's fortress. And later it would become a synonym for the city. So it could represent a literal city, especially in its security, by making a reference to the Mount Zion angle of that. 
At the same time, it's not totally secure, at least in earthly terms, if we range down to the end of verse 3. In describing the 144,000, it says they were redeemed from the earth. And the Greek word there, apo, means away from. And so they've been redeemed away from the earth and implies that here we're talking probably about a figurative reference for heaven, which is the new Jerusalem. We see that in chapter 21, verse 2 of Revelation. We also see two other references of this in the in the New Testament, Galatians 4.26. Paul describes the Jerusalem that is above, that is free. She is our mother. And then the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. So another reference to Mount Zion as the heavenly New Jerusalem. Again, keep in mind the context of chapters 12 and 13, which was a view of things from earth and a view in particular of Satan attacking uh, his people, uh, or not his people, the the people of God uh, and the church. And so this is the perspective from God and his vantage point from Mount Zion that in fact, everything is secure. As rough as things look in chapter 12 12 and 13, the real vantage point is what we see that opens up chapter 14. The last uh, thing to note here is that Mount Zion is contrasted with Mount Sinai, which is the place of the law. And so the reference here to Zion is more comforting uh, to Christians who recognize that we're not saved by the law, we're saved by God's grace through faith, And ultimately, that place of security is Mount Zion. So back to verse 1, we've got the Lamb, and then standing with him, 144,000 who have his name and God's name written on their foreheads. So this this takes us back to chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, where we had the same number, the 144,000, and we had a, a reference there as well to a mark or seal from God. And so this is either the same literal people, the same 144,000 people, or as we talked about back in chapter 7, 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. And so it may be a figurative reference using numerology. Remember back in chapter 7, uh, there were also references to the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the like. And so it's easy to read this as uh, all believers. Uh, Back in chapter 7, there were tribes mentioned Of course, that's not mentioned uh, here. A larger point, again, is to read this in context of chapter 13. I think we think that the chapter numbers were part of the revelation handed down to us, but that came many centuries later. And so there's an artificial break here between 13.18 and 14.1. Again, read it in context, and the mark that is being described here in verse 1 is in direct context. Uh, contrast to the mark of the beast in chapter 13, verses 16 through 18. And as we talked about last week, what does a mark symbolize? What does a mark do? Well, it does the same thing it did last week as this week. It symbolizes ownership, loyalty, open identification with, dependence upon, and security. When the mark was described in chapter 7, it was used to depict the protection from the judgments of God on earth. But now it's used in a different way. It's illustrating their place in heaven with God. Instead of of earthly protection here, we're talking about their heavenly place. In light of Revelation 12 and 13, this is a picture of God's triumph and the believer's security. 
again, it's ironic that we read Revelation 13 and people wig out about the mark of the beast and on and on. Just read one more verse and it's a totally different picture. God triumphs and the believer is secure uh, with the mark of God on his forehead. In verse 3, it says they sang rather than spoke. Most most uh, worship in Revelation is spoken, but this is sung. They sing a new song. We saw that in chapter 5, verse 9, and we're told that it could only be learned by them. So a number of different possible angles here. It could be that this is a reference, as we mentioned before, to all Christians. And so it could be that the Christians know the song and the non-Christians don't. So this is a song about deliverance and salvation. There are some echoes of Exodus 15 here. And I think it would also speak to the non-Christians' frequent inability to relate to us. We can sing a song. We understand grace. We've embraced that through faith, and we have an experience that the non-Christian does not understand. The second possibility is it could be that it could be a subset of Christians, a set of martyrs, right, within the faith. And if that's uh, the interpretation, then the song would be uh, something that they're only able to experience because of their uh, high level of suffering, uh, their high level of faithfulness, that they have had an experience that other Christians haven't had, right? All of us are saved in this picture. Uh, in this interpretation, but the martyrs have experienced something different and special, and they therefore have an experience and an ability to sing a song that others of us are not able to experience and sing. A third possibility is to distinguish Christians from angels, and that angels uh, may not have a full uh, experience uh, and are unable to experience things the same ways that humans do. Their sense of deliverance would be uh, different. So that's another possibility here. Verse 2 has a sound or voice from heaven like rushing waters. We saw that reference in chapter 1, verse 15. We'll see it again in chapter 19, verse 6. Also like thunder, which is used 10 times in Revelation to symbolize the powerful voice of God. And we have our second of three references to harps, which of course are a popular heavenly reference. We saw harps back in chapter 5, verse 8, and we'll see it again in chapter 15, verse 2. In any case, what a combo. Rushing waters, thunder, and harps. That's quite a concert. All right, this is a good place for us to take a break. So uh, please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry within its piece of God's kingdom. Please spread the word about the Pure Radio Network, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Pure Radio, reaching all of Kentuckiana with the pure gospel of Jesus. All right, welcome back to the Word Diet. We're in Revelation 14 this week, and we had gotten through verses 1 through 3 of the Lamb and the 144,000. We're up to verse 4, which talks about the 144,000. Again, we saw them back in chapter 7, but all we knew about them at that point was they had the mark of God, and they had a number, and they had nationalities. Here we get a lot more detail. The first one's kind of strange. Uh, Some form of uh, exhibited character or faithfulness, and it says that they had kept themselves pure, literally virgins, not defiling, or the term is defined back in chapter 3, verse 4, as soiled themselves with women. So here, if we take this literally, we're looking at virginity. So we're looking at 
uh, a form of asceticism and celibacy. And that's troubling for a couple of reasons, right? Because where's marriage in all this? And are we denigrating marriage? That doesn't make any sense. And if we take this literally, are we only talking about men? That seems sort of troubling. So a slightly less literal possibility is that this is a reference to men's sexual uh, immorality, that they were staying sexually moral. Even that, I think, is not is, is still too strange and not figurative enough uh, to be accurate. So I've got to go with the much more likely interpretation, I think, of there's a lack of spiritual adultery here. As we've th- seen throughout Revelation, as you see throughout the scriptures, there's a connection of spiritual and physical adultery where physical adultery is used as a type of a reference to comparison to spiritual adultery. And if that's the case here, then we have really what's being described as a loyalty to Christ, uh, avoiding defilement with the world and the beast of chapter 13 and the harlot or Babylon, which we'll see shortly in chapters 16 through 18. So I think that's a much uh, easier useful way to read this. But again, it requires a much more figurative reading than some claim to make when they approach the book of Revelation. We saw a similar conversation back in chapter 12, verse 1, when it was the woman and the dragon, and we asked, well, why why use a woman? And women were used uh, in literature to represent uh, various things. We have in, in the scriptures, wisdom is a woman in Proverbs. Uh, the church is about to be described as a woman or a bride. False religions on the other side of the coin are often described uh, as women. And so, uh, you know, women shouldn't take this personally. It goes both ways. Sometimes the references are good or bad. It's just a literary feature uh, to refer to these things as women and therefore uh, to make the reference here in verse 4 that seems to be about men. I think even cooler here is that they are completely pure And that's how God sees us, his redeemed. Israel is described as a virgin, sometimes in the Old Testament. And there are some New Testament references where the gender actually flips. A couple of fairly famous passages, 2 Corinthians 11, 2. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. And then a really famous passage, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So very similar references. Again, the gender has been flipped here. So uh, just much smarter not to take the gender part of it too seriously. It's a representation, a type, uh, not an explicit literal reference to gender. We are not perfect people, in other words, but we're washed in the blood. And we saw that back in chapter 7, verse 14. The 144,000 there had washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. A great reference back in chapter 7, verse 14. The other references here in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 14 are more straightforward. They had had exhibited loyalty and devotion. The text says they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. It's interesting that Christ in his ministry on earth encouraged his disciples to follow him and to take up their cross and follow him. And so we have the same sort of language here. Are we following Christ as disciples? Are we following Christ in particular through 
the daily crosses that we have to bear, the difficulties, persecutions that are alluded to in Revelation? Are we following the Lamb wherever he goes, wherever he wants to take us? These believers are doing that. Third, the text tells us they had put their identity in Christ. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. First fruits is a reference to Leviticus 23, verses 9 through 14. Two New Testament references, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then James 1.18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. The preterists have a pretty easy time with this passage. They see this as those who escaped from Jerusalem, the believers who escaped from Jerusalem as Jerusalem and the temple were going to be sacked in 70 AD. The historicists have to do some finessing, right? Because uh, the fruit they're talking about, usually this is around the time of the Reformation, so it's hard to imagine these people as the first fruits, more like midterm fruits. And the figure, uh, the uh, futurists have the hardest time of all. Again, they claim to uh, try to interpret things literally, uh, but they've got to go figurative a lot in this chapter. And here, you know, clearly, if they're looking at this occurring at the end of time, they're not the first fruits, they're the last fruits. Uh, the ones coming at the end of time. Uh, futurists have a number of uh, angles to pursue here, uh, different subsets of people that they are uh, that they imagine this t- uh, to be. But I think the overarching concern here is you've got to read this figuratively, and you've got to finesse this reference to first fruits here in verses four and five. And last, they exhibited integrity. Right? They were honest and blameless. On integrity, one of my favorite verses is Daniel chapter 6, verse 4, when they're looking for dirt on Daniel, the officials and wise men. They can't find anything. And the text says they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Corruption implies sins of commission and negligent implies he was also avoiding sins of omission. And so Daniel's character was impeccable. Here the term blameless, again, if you want to go literally, nobody's blameless and uh, unless we're talking about uh, after you appropriate the blood. So we are blameless in a sense, covered by Christ's blood, but I think the other reference here clearly is that these are people of great integrity, uh, living lives that are impressive, both in the sense of avoiding sins of omission and commission, like Daniel. Two last thoughts as we finish this opening section, again, which should be read in light of Revelation 13. Following those last two chapters, Scotty Smith says, rather than being left to dread Satan and to fear his ways, John is led by God in the vision to worship God and delight in his ways. And I don't think I can say it enough. 13 usually invokes fear, worry, and all sorts of things. That's not the biblical pattern here. Instead, it leads to chapter 14. God takes him directly from the events of 13 to the worship and the security and the victory of 14. And if you're stopping in 13, in essence, as you read it, as you focus on that passage, you're missing the way that God wants you to understand chapter 13. Spinning it a little different direction, this is a picture of the faithful believer's victory over the dragon Chapter 12, verse 11 had that in there. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And 
soon their victory over the beast. We'll see that in chapter 15, verse 2. Those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. Even in death and apparent defeat, chapter 13, verse 7, he was given power, this is the beast, to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. It looks like he's being victorious, but he's not. The victory is ours in Christ Jesus. Through the faithful witness to the testimony of Jesus, these believers have victory. And so, again, we, we look at chapter you know, chapter 13 out of its context. We look at the defeat and the damage and the persecution. But the overall picture in chapters 12 through 15 in these seven pictures is different. Read them in context. It is vitally important to have a divine perspective, especially in the midst of persecution. And it's enunciated here from heaven by a vision that God wants conveyed so that people understand and have the proper perspective of the difficulties that they deal with in this life. All right, we'll take a break before we get into the next section. If you're on Facebook, please like Pure Radio and friend me there. Remember that the podcasts are available on Facebook, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Feel free to interact with me on my Facebook account. Happy to meet you there. We'll be back in a minute. Become a P3 Partner. P3 Partners are Pure Radio listeners who pray for Pure Radio each day, provide financial support to our programmers, Promote Pure Radio by telling others about us and sharing us on Facebook. Ready to get started? Go to pureradio.org and click on the P3 Partners button and register. P3 Partners have privileges. Get books, DVDs, CDs, devotional materials, invitation-only access to Pure Radio events, and other experience opportunities only available to P3 Partners. Pray, provide, and promote Pure Radio. Become a P3 partner today. Welcome back to the Word Diet. We're in Revelation 14 this week, and in the first two segments, we took care of Revelation 14, 1 through 5, the Lamb and the 144,000. This segment, we're going to deal with the three angels and a voice of verses 6 through 13, and I'll read a few verses at a time, dealing with one angel at a time. So verse 6 and 7, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, And he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So the first angel has an eternal gospel to proclaim to everyone. Again, we see the reference to every nation, tribe, language, and people. I like that it's called the eternal gospel. I think we can think of it being the eternal gospel, both in its nature, right? It's been from beginning and end, relating to God and his justice, holiness, grace. It's eternal in its consequences as well, whether you accept it or not. And it can be contrasted with all things evil, which are set for destruction, which we're rolling into here in a few chapters. The particular message here is to fear God, give him glory, and worship him because the hour of his judgment has come. Again, this points to the gospel as always both good and bad news. It's called good news, but it's good news in contrast to the bad news if you don't accept it. And that's by definition. This is also an interesting way to define the gospel. I don't think most of us would define the gospel in these terms. There's no mention of Jesus here or grace. Uh, They're told to worship him on two accounts, that he is judge and he is creator. 
As for him being a judge, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Hebrews eleven six. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. In other words, that he is a good judge. And the reference to creator is good too. That seems to be the basics of faith, the basis of faith in some ways. Acts 14, 15, Paul says, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Notice that Paul also uses a fourfold uh, description of creation, and he uses the term good news there in Acts 14, 15. Or in Romans 1, 20, Paul gets a lot of his argument going by referring to God as the creator. Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And so Paul uses the argument that, hey, people know from God being a creator that you know, there is a God. And we know from inference that he must be a good God. And so he starts his argument in Acts 14 in Romans 1 with God as creator. Historicists see this as the Great Awakening and the missionary era. Preterists see this as the early church's proclamation of the gospel. Okay, the second angel, verse 8, a second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Fallen is repeated twice for emphasis. Notice the verb tense is, is, right? It's the present tense, or it's already happened, or it's so certain that it is as if it already has happened. Or it may imply a permanent state from the view of heaven. In any case, we have much more to read and discuss about this in Revelation 17 and 18 in a couple weeks. Babylon here is identified as the great and is charged with making all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. We'll see references just like this in chapter 17, verse 2, and chapter 18, verse 3. This is reminiscent of Jeremiah 51, verses 7 through 9. Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand. She made the whole earth drunk. The nations drank her wine. Therefore, now they have gone mad. Babylon will suddenly fall and be broken. Wail over her, get balm for her pain. Perhaps she can be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she cannot be healed. Let us leave her and each go to our own land, for her judgment reaches to the skies. It rises as high as the heavens. And we'll probably read that verse again, that passage again in a couple weeks, right? Because there's the call to leave Babylon. Uh, Babylon is judged. Babylon will fall. Babylon here is great, but its greatness is contrasted with the even greater glory of God in verse 7. It's interesting that says she made the nations drink. We usually think of individual responsibility for sin, but there is an interesting reference in First and Second Kings where I think it's 25 times it says the kings caused the people to sin. And it's interesting that leaders and institutions do seem to have a role in God's economy with blame for individuals engaging in sin. The adulteries are maddening wine, so they're intoxicating, they alter behavior, they offer no lasting pleasure, they require more and more, and they ultimately leave you empty. So this is our introduction to Babylon. Again, much more to talk about later. What is this, right? For the preterist, they would look at this as Jerusalem or the Roman Empire. The historicist would see this as a reference to uh, the Rome and the uh, Rome and the Catholic Church under the Pope. 
And they see this as them about to be judged through the French Revolution. The futurists see this as literal for a rebuilt city uh, or more often figurative for worldly and misused political and religious power. In other words, this is the worldly system as opposed to God, which symbolizes evil, decadence, and power, much like the ancient Babylon would have done. Again, it could represent a city, as we see in chapter 17, verse 9, which is a reference to Rome, or a system. 1 Peter 5, 13, uh, Peter writes, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. And that's not literal Babylon. It's a reference to uh, Babylon, the worldly system. So Babylon also symbolizes worldly unity as, as far back as Genesis 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel. Christians are called to a true unity throughout the New Testament, and we see that unity being aped in Revelation 13 with the two beasts from last week, the one world government, one world religion, all of it in service to Satan. So in John's day, they would have seen Babylon as Rome, but of course Babylon has been very active since as a, as a theme. William Barclay says, in the ancient days, Babylon to the prophets had been the very incarnation of power, lust, luxury, and sin. And to the early Jewish Christians, Babylon seemed to have been reborn in Rome. We don't want to let ourselves off the hook too much, whether we're in the end of time, according to the futurists or the the preterists looking back. Chapter 18, verse 4 will call all of us to come out of Babylon. So there's a call to pay attention to this in any time in every place to be wary of Babylon and its temptations. Okay, so now the third angel, verses 9 through 11. The third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. So the third angel pronounces wrath of God's judgment on non-Christians, and it's defined here as those who worship the beast and his image. Again, that's in context of just two verses ago. Chapter 14, verse 7 was, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So it's a choice. You're either going to worship God, verse 7, or you've been worshiping the beast and his image here in verse 9, and receive his mark. Again, you've got the mark of the beast, chapter 13, versus the mark of the lamb in chapter 14. From there, their language is really rough. They'll drink the wine of God's fury, which is poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. So this is wine that's fermented all the way. Usually wine was uh, enhanced with spices for potency, or it was diluted, and apparently that's not going to be the case in the picture here. We also have the wine of God's judgment in verse 10, and that's in contrast with the wine of Babylon's allure in verse 8. Again, you've got a choice. Which wine uh, do you want? If you choose, well, actually, it's not a choice. If you choose the wine of Babylon's allure in verse 8, you get the wine of God's judgment in verse 10. Kind of reminds me of a father punishing a child smoking by making them smoke a full pack of cigarettes. I don't know if people do that anymore, but I've heard stories, but it's kind of like that, right? You take this wine, verse 8, and I'm, I'm going to give you the real thing here in verse 10. 
Verse 10 continues, they will be tormented with burning sulfur. This is the fire and brimstone. We'll see it again in chapters 19, 20, and 21. It's also the destruction for Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. And there's also a reference in Psalm 11, verse 6. This is usually taken as hell, but some preterists see this as the destruction of Rome and Jerusalem, uh, which would, of course, be read figuratively. The end of verse 10 is a little strange. In the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, strange and I think unanticipated, it points to the need for witnesses, and it does seemingly add to the torment that you can't get away from Christ, uh, even in the midst of judgment. I think for us this is odd because it points to uh, worshiping God for his wrath and justice, but you've got to worship God for his justice as well. We need things to work out in the end. We worship a God who's perfectly just, and we worship him for that, even though it is uncomfortable, as we see here in verse 10. Verse 11, the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. They have no rest, day or night. We saw the same language used very differently back in chapter 4, verse 8. Worship in heaven was day and night when they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And again, there's this basic choice. You're going to go day and night with worship, or you're going to go day and night with smoke of the torment. Which way do you want to go? Reminds me of Isaiah 34:10. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will rise forever from generation to generation. It will lie desolate. No one will pass through it again, which is a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, but then connecting it to the Babylon of Isaiah's day. So last thing to say here is these three angels are all connected. The gospel leads to Babylon's fall and its judgment. As William Barclay says, the gospel has of necessity a double-edged quality. It is good news for those who receive it, but it is judgment to those that reject it. And it is self-imposed, right? People have a choice to make here. God is infinitely just, patient, has love and grace available for us, but we must choose it. If we do not choose the good news, we choose the bad news. This section ends with verses 12 and 13 and a message to the saints. Verse 12, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. Patient endurance has made a couple of appearances. We saw it back in chapter 1, verse 9 as a pivotal introductory verse. We saw it in chapter 13, verse 10, within the uh, first beast and that discussion there. Patient endurance, obedience to God's commands, faithfulness to Jesus. In other words, sanctification. That's walking with Christ, especially with respect to persecution. You know, especially in that day, the early church, right, reading this, John's audience, you had an absolute need for faithfulness for a then struggling religion. Apostasy could be deadly to the church. But it's true in any time, especially in persecution, the, 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 the need, the importance of shining the light of faithfulness and patient endurance in the midst of persecution is so key. Verse 13 promises a blessing. This is the second of Revelation 7 Beatitudes, we had the first one way back in chapter 1, verse 3, which was to read and hear uh, and obey Revelation. We've got a lot more of those coming up at the end of the book. Uh, They would receive rest and reward for their good deeds. Now, what time frame are we in? Those who die in the Lord from now on. So the preterists, of course, have the dividing line at 70 AD, so they see the new covenant 
versus the Old Covenant. The historicists look at church age persecution. And of course, the futurists see this as end time martyrs. Again, we have to make sure that we're reading this in a way that would have made some sense to John's audience. And finally, again, a reminder to read 13 in context. Go back to verse 11. Verse 11 was no rest in judgment. Here we have verse 13, rest and reward. Scotty Smith observes about this, to worship the beast is to be guaranteed eternal punishment. To die in the Lord is to be guaranteed eternal rest. It is always a choice between the power that operates through inflicting suffering and the power that operates through accepting and working through suffering. And that's the call to the saints here at the end of the the picture of the three angels. All right, we're going to take our last break here. Please consider consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Please spread the word about the Pure Radio Network, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Pure Radio, reaching all of Kentuckiana with the pure gospel of Jesus. Welcome back to the Word Diet. We're in Revelation 14 today, and uh, it has three related but separate pictures that uh, John and and Christ are working through here in between the seventh trumpet of Revelation 11 and the seven seals of Revelation 16. The first picture today was the lamb and the 144,000. We spent two segments on that, and I think the punchline there is to make sure that it's understood and Revelation 13 is understood in context of each other. A lot of times Revelation 13 is understood by itself, and it evokes a lot of worry and fear about the mark of the beast and the beasts uh, of false religion and state power. But just read the next five verses and you get a totally different picture. And sometimes Revelation 14, I think, is not seen as all that as uh, all that exciting. People are thinking, well, let me, you know, we had the beasts and let me just get to 16, 17 and 18. Let's get those uh, bulls of wrath going. Let's uh, read about Babylon being judged. But we kind of skip over 14 and 15. But this opening segment, 14, 1 through 5, and 13 are inseparable, need to be read together. And then the second picture of today was the three angels. And so we went through their judgment in the last segment. And so for the last segment today, we deal with the last picture of chapter 14, which is the harvest of the earth. And there are two harvest picture here, pictured here. So let me read chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple, and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested." Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes, clusters of grapes, from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great wine press of God's wrath. They were trampled in the wine press outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. The first thing to wrestle with is, is this two of the same picture 
uh, a supporting verse for that would be Joel 3.13, where it says, Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. And in Joel 3, the two metaphors of a grain harvest and a grape winepress harvest are back-to-back and seen as the same judgment. Here there are other clues. Of course, this passage is much longer, and there are other reasons to expect that there's something different going on here, and that's the angle that I'm going to take. We've already seen two different judgments and two different responses to judgments back in chapter 6 and chapter 11, and then again, the clues in the text itself, I think, lend towards a two-judgment interpretation, so that's what I'm going to go with. Both of these judgments do involve a sharp one-swing sickle, but the first judgment does not refer to a gathering. Uh, Instead, it has a reaping and then a threshing and a winnowing. So there are some differences here, but I think there's some smaller clues that give us, um, take us to a, a more comfortable inference that we're dealing with two specific judgments. So let's deal with the first harvest first, verses 14 through 16. The first thing is the harvester, probably Christ one like a son of man. We saw this reference back in chapter 1, verse 13. It's the only other reference uh, for this in Revelation. Again, the context there was the seven churches and setting up the letters in chapters 2 and 3. And of course, this is also a reference back to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. There, uh, Daniel writes, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and powers of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Right. So a clear messianic reference to Jesus, who would come centuries later. Christ himself picks up that language throughout the Gospels. And many of Christ's own Son of Man references in the Gospels are also apocalyptic, even as he's within his first coming, he's already talking about the second coming. For example, Mark 14, 61 and 62, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Or Mark 8.38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Or John 5.27, the Father has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Matthew 10.23, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. Amen, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So you've got a reference there, the preterists like that verse, right? Because it's a reference to 70 AD and the destruction of the temple. These can be read as second coming references as well. But in any case, clearly apocalyptic, right? Christ is coming again in judgment, whether we're talking about the temple in 70 AD and or the second coming. And so the reference here in Revelation 14, 14 to one like a son of man clearly seems to be of Christ. Uh, He is seated on a cloud. We saw that back in chapter 1, verse 7. We saw it again in chapter 10, verse 1. And he's got a crown of gold on his head. Now, there are those who see this as an angel, and they would point to the crown that uh, this angel is wearing, this messenger, 
And it's the victory crown of Stephanos. It's not the diadem royal crown that Christ will be wearing in chapter 19, verse 12. Uh, it's a decent argument, but I don't, I don't think it's enough to sack the other uh, references here that seem to be clearly connecting to Jesus. So I'm going to argue this is uh, Jesus Christ as the harvester. Then you've got the harvesting, which is implied of grain, and there is a reaping when the grain is ripe. Now, this metaphor is not the clearest either. There are many times in Scripture when this, uh, the grain and the harvest are used as a metaphor for evangelism. Consider Matthew 9, 37 through 38. Christ says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Or Mark 24, verses 26 through 29. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grape grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. And John 4, 35 and 36, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes, look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. But other times the metaphor is mixed. You have wheat and chaff in Matthew 3.12 that are harvested and the, the chaff uh, goes into an unquenchable fire while the wheat does go into a barn. So that's a little, a little tougher to apply here. Or uh, the parable of the weeds uh, from Matthew 13, uh, same sort of thing. Um, so not totally clear cut, but again, I think given the uh, other evidences, I think the best interpretation here is that this is a harvest of believers uh, and the judgment seat of Christ as referred to in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Uh, this may easily then be a reference to the rapture of 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Probably the best passage on the judgment of Christians is in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. And so all believers are building on the foundation of Jesus, right? All are saved because of Jesus, but we're building through our works. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And are we doing those good works? If we do the good works, we're building using gold, silver, and costly stones. If we're bumping around, being knuckleheads, we might still be saved by grace, but we're building with wood, hay, and straw. The day, the day of judgment, judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. The quality will be revealed reward or burned up, right? Either we build for eternity or we waste our time and what we build is burned up and we make it to heaven, but only as one escaping through the flames, a very vivid picture there. 
So that takes us to the second harvest. So while we might debate what the first harvest is, uh, it's pretty clear what the second harvest is in verses 17 through 20. The harvester is another angel from heaven's temple. And in this case, the harvest is grapes, and they're gathered when ripe to be thrown into and trampled in the great winepress of God's wrath. We'll see another reference to this in chapter 19, verse 15. And this is clearly not a good judgment. Uh, This is a a judgment of non-Christians, and it's not going to go well. I read that Joel 3.13 passage earlier. That certainly uh, sounds like this. Lamentations 1.15 compares Jerusalem to Babylon uh, using similar language. But let me read Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, a a rough um, parallel passage. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in anger and trampled them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance, the year for me to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Whoa. So that's a picture of judgment in the time of Isaiah, the second half of Isaiah, which is largely about the Messiah, there's a a reference to the second coming in Isaiah 63. Remember the wine of wrath in chapter 14, verse 10. Well, here's how it's made in the second harvest. Again, very similar to what we'll see at the end of chapter 19, the last half. There's a Christ-led battle which leads to the judgment of non-Christians at God's white throne judgment, which we will describe at length in chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Now, why non-Christians? Well, we've got a reference to fire in verse 18. We've got the wine press's violent bloodshed in verse 20. And another key uh, characteristic here is that all this is happening outside the city. Bloodshed inside would defile the city. Hebrews 13, 11, and 12, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. It's also interesting that Gethsemane means olive press. And so when Jesus was crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah 53, 5, we either accept the olive press or we accept the wine press of Revelation 14. All of this results in a tremendous, really impossible river of blood as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia, which is about 180 miles. So if we take that part of it literal, this would be the length of Canaan, or an area around Jerusalem. As the approximate north-south length of Palestine, Barclay observes that the tide of judgment would flow over and include the whole land. 1600 here is rarely taken as literal, even by the futurist. Instead, they look at 1600 as figurative. It's 40 squared, or it's 4 squared, which is the number of earth, and 10 squared, which is the number of completeness. So 1600 is a good number from numerology purposes. In any case, it indicates how many people will be in this judgment. What do we do with this? Well, for believers, we are patient. James 5, 7, and 8, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, 
patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. The agricultural reference from James is to be patient. And for non-believers, again, it's a call to repentance. We saw a lack of repentance in chapter 6. We saw uh, good repentance in chapter 11. And the question here is, is unanswered. It's an open question. Are they going to deny or accept the gospel and the witness? And we also know the bowls of chapter 16 await. What will people do with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And those are the questions today. Will we eagerly and patiently await? Do we look forward to the Lord's coming? And for non-believers, what will they do with the gospel? Lord, we lift up this passage to you. We pray that we would wait patiently and eagerly expect your coming. We pray for those who have considered the gospel and rejected it, that they may accept it in the days to come before it's too late. Lord, we thank you for all that you give us in the name of Jesus. Amen. I hope to catch you next week on The Word Diet. Take care.